If you're a follower of Jesus, you want to know this is Communion Sunday. And this evening in our service, we are going to observe Communion. We're going to follow the Lord Jesus' loving, gentle reminder to meet with Him regularly and to share a meal in His memory to think of Him. I want to tell you that for a couple of reasons. One is because uh, communion is something that you should never go into unprepared. And so I just want you to think uh, about preparing yourself for communion. And the Scriptures say if you're a believer that uh, you'll examine your own heart. And that would be a good thing to do this afternoon, just to examine yourself and come to the communion table then here tonight with, uh, with an open heart and with a tender heart to the Lord. Uh, so that's in the 6 o'clock service, and I trust you'll be able to make it back. We'll be praying that the air conditioning's working, and uh, we'll enjoy that. Some of the most valuable, most beautiful, most uh, precious things to us in our lives are really, really hard to define. Now, like, for instance, this morning, we've been singing and we've been glorying in this idea of freedom, but that's kind of hard to define, isn't it? And the reason that is because it's an idea. Ideas exist in our minds. They're abstract, not concrete. You, can't, you, you don't describe freedom with, um, for instance, you don't use the five senses necessarily. When you think freedom that comes in your mind, you just have kind of a vague, abstract idea of what that means. And yet, if you were to go with me, like for instance, back in time to a little village called Utica, Ohio, say on Memorial Day weekend, which the old timers called Decoration Day, you would be maybe with me in the cemetery when the color guard would come in on the parade. They would be going toward the cemetery and all the different organizations in town would have a contribution to that parade. And when the color guard came by and when the flag came by, my grandfather, who was a World War II veteran, and my dad, who served in the Navy and in the Army, they would get this kind of sober, kind of seriousness about them. They would always be the first to stand and get their hat off or their hand over their heart when the colors came by because freedom was more than an abstract idea to them. It's something that they had been involved in. My grandfather once saw a young man in the 60s, kind of irreverent, unpatriotic, uh, had the American flag sewn to the seat of his jeans. And, and my, I saw my grandfather, when he saw that fellow with the flag sewn on the bottom of his jeans, walk up to him, and he said, young man, I just want you to know that I have seen men die so that you have the freedom to wear that flag on your jeans today. Just want you to know that. See, that moves freedom from an abstract to a very concrete thing. When we start talking about shedding blood, when we start talking about attending funerals, then freedom goes from an abstraction to a very concrete thing. One of the things that I love about Jesus and I love about the Bible when you study the teaching technique of Jesus is that Jesus never left things in the abstract but always made them very clear very plain, and very concrete. He did this often with storytelling. That's what stories do. Stories take an abstraction, which, by the way, abstract ideas can be extremely valuable. The abstract ideas that Jesus brought down from heaven that He included in His book are the very heartbeat of our lives 
but he didn't leave them in kind of vague terms, but he would take stories about trees and flowers and birds and food and blood, and he would make them very concrete. And and I'll give you a quick example. He didn't always use stories. Today, Jesus is going to do something to teach his disciples. He's going to teach, he's going to make something abstract, very concrete, without using a story. This is going to be a bigger deal than a story. This is going to be something that they would never forget, not even in their lifetimes, not even after their lives had ended, would they forget what Jesus was going to do to make something abstract, concrete. Let me give you another example. But what if I were to tell you that? Friday morning and Saturday morning were peaceful mornings for me. Well, that would be kind of abstract. If I said Friday morning and Saturday mornings were, they were peaceful mornings for me. What if I were to say, on Friday morning and Saturday morning, I, I took a walk on a college campus. And it was in the cool of the day. It was early in the day. Both days were obviously going to be hot days, but they were very beautiful in the morning. I walked around a lake. The lake reflected the blue of the sky, and there was a cool breeze blowing off the lake. I walked past a huge tree where there was a red-tailed hawk, a huge red-tailed hawk in the tree. When I went by, it swooped away. As I walked toward the back of this well-manicured campus, you could hear the spurting of the sprinklers going everywhere, and you could hear the tolling of the bells in the distance. It was, a, it was just a beautiful, fragrant, cool, quiet sunny morning and the sun reflected off the the gold dome on the main building on the campus and then as i got towards the back of the campus i could smell bacon and coffee oh i got you there didn't i some of you are writing that down you're like how far will he go without talking about food now why does that give you a better idea of a peaceful morning because it's all full of concrete description Jesus didn't come just to put abstractions in the minds of people, kind of ethereal, foggy, meaningless, religious-sounding talk. He didn't ever do that. Jesus always grabbed people by the throat when he taught. He was a person you could not possibly ignore. I don't mean that he was always violent or mean or harsh, certainly not. He was just direct and clear and concrete, and he appealed to the senses to make things clear. Now, how many of you heard this idea that we talk about in church all the time? Glory, right? You've heard that. We sing about glory, and we say, well, glory, and I'm going to glory, and glory to God in the highest. And, and if you ask the average Christian, what's glory? They would struggle to define that. What is glory? We think about peace, freedom, love, hope, faith, grace, Glory. They're all wonderful Christian, biblical, abstract words that cry out for definition. Explain that to me clearly. And if you get enough definition, if things are clear and concrete enough, then people cry, or they laugh, or they nod, or they change their lives, or they wake up, which is a wonderful thing if you're a pastor, to see people awake from sleep, you know. So, and by the way, if you work third shift and you're struggling with sleep, I just want to give you a medal. Thank you for being here. Don't misunderstand. So, uh, so what is with this thing glory? What is that? If somebody said to you, 
You need to define glory for $20. Crisp $20 bill, define glory for me. Oh, let's make it $100. Now, this is just an abstraction I'm talking about. This is not going to happen. All right? But if, if I were to say, I'll give you $100 to define glory. I wonder if we get a line of people up here saying, I'll do that. That's like, like line, I could use $100. Chris would be on the first guy up here. Here's what, I'll give a definition of glory. Well, let me give you a bit of a definition. The scriptures are going to talk about glory. In the text that we're in today, it's Matthew 16, verse 28, through the first 13 verses of Matthew 17. It's a, it's a story that happened that, called the transfiguration of Jesus. The glory of God is going to shine on Jesus Christ. And he, in this story, is going to allow select disciples to see God's glory on himself. We know in the Bible that glory is often it's associated with light. Glory is a, the greatest light word in the Bible. But we've got to know that there's something more to it than that. Like, for instance, if you get to Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, and, and the seraphim and cherubim are singing, Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with His... Why didn't it say holiness? Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with His glory. Because glory is the expression of the beauty of God, of all that God is. Glory is the public expression of all that God is. So if we glorify God, we through our lives, or through our song, or through our talk, are, ex- are expressing who God is. We're, it, there, a way of saying that would be, imagine that Jesus is here, and the light that shines on Jesus to show all that He is, is, is glory. The glory of God is the outward expression, the public expression of all that God is, all the various beauties of God, all the various qualities of God, all the various sweetnesses of God, all the things that make God beautiful and compelling and wonderful and attractive, those are His glory. That is the glory of God. And so when we participate in speaking or singing things about God to make Him known, we glorify God. When we let God work in our lives so that we're like Him, we glorify God, especially because we're just showing people what God is like. And so what God wants to do, what Jesus wants to do with His disciples, if you recall in the text, He's taken them through a really difficult time when they say, great, you're the Messiah, we got this figured out. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, you're the Son of Man. You're coming in glory. We'll conquer our enemies. There's going to be, God is going to show up and going to manifest Himself. Great, I want to be on that team. He says, oh, one quick thing I forgot to tell you. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and there I'm going to get murdered. And if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. Horrors! That doesn't sound like glory to me. And so Jesus says, no, this is the way it is, and don't tell me it's not. Remember Peter, last week as we preached the message, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because he said to him, it's, it, basically Peter is saying, kind of inspired by the devil, you can be all that you that God wants you to be without any suffering, without any cross, without any death. And that's where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, we're going to suffer. But then immediately, you're going to see in our little story, he takes three of the disciples up to a high mountain. And there he shows them his what? His light, his glory. 
He, he, ex- he shows them an expression of, of who He really is. He's going to make Himself known in a very unique way. He's going to get very, very concrete. And so now let's take a look at the text this morning. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 28, in a moment we'll explain why we begin in verse 28. I believe, just to be very, very direct, that verse 28 is a description of what's going to happen immediately starting in chapter 17 and verse 1. And so it says, Assuredly, Jesus speaking, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter... James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here Three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces, and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them, of John the Baptist. It's a pretty interesting story, isn't it? Why is this in the Bible? Critical question to ask. This unlocks riches of the Bible. If you always ask yourself the question, why is that in the Bible? Why did Jesus do this transfiguration thing with his disciples? Why did Matthew record it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Why does God want his people on a sunny summer morning like this to stop for a while and think about what happened when Jesus glowed with the glory of God high on the mountain just before he was going to go to Jerusalem and die? Why? I think we'll get the answer as we kind of work our way through the text just a little bit. And so let's think our way through this text just for a moment. Chapter 16 and verse 28 is an enigma. It's tricky. It's mysterious. Various interpretations have been suggested. It really almost seems like it's talking about the second coming of Christ in power and great glory. It sounds like a coming passage in power and great glory, but can it be that if Jesus is promising that some of those that were there will still be alive when it happens, and it hasn't happened yet. In the Scriptures, there it's common to have a prophecy like this, with a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, a dual reference prophecy. It's very common in the Bible. example of this would be in Acts chapter 2. 
And when, when there was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then there's all kinds of language about things that hadn't happened yet, but that would happen at the time of Christ's return. And yet it says, this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. And so what would happen is often a prophet, a true prophet of God, would give a prophecy with a near fulfillment or an element of near fulfillment, and a, 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 which would be partial and incomplete, immediate fulfillment, and then a distant and complete fulfillment, like the Acts chapter 2 passage is. This passage is similar to that. And, and the purpose of that would be that the, the prophecies is like, you know, hundreds of years from now this is going to happen, or thousands of years from now this is going to happen. But as a token, watch this happen right now. And Jesus is saying here, I believe this, to his disciples, yes, following me means that we're going to see the Father's glory. Following me means that we're going to reign with the Father. Following me and being my disciple means that I'm the Messiah and I'm going to set up a reign on the earth, a kingdom on the earth. But there's going to be suffering and there's going to be death and there's going to be sorrow first. But in order to encourage you, let me give you a little foretaste of glory. A little foretaste of what it's going to be like to have your deepest desires fulfilled by seeing who God really is. So he gives them this experience of a foretaste of glory. And then notice he takes Peter and James and John in verse 1. And there he's transfigured. He glows with glory. His clothes glows. Face glows with light. And appearing there with him are Moses and Elijah. Moses... And Elijah, the law and the prophets. Very interesting. Key Old Testament characters now are appearing and they're talking with Jesus. What are they talking about, do you know? doesn't say in Matthew, but it says in Luke that they're talking about Jesus' death, his exodus. uses a kind of a softening euphemism for his death. They're talking with him about his exodus. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his death. This is what Jesus has just gotten through telling his disciples he's going to do. He's going to go to Jerusalem. There he's going to lay down his life and they're going to murder him. But then he's going to rise again and it's almost like that goes over the disciples' head. They're just kind of confused about this whole thing. If you're Messiah, we're looking forward to glory. He's like, that's, don't get ahead of things. That's going to be, and, and by the way, he says, and he's going to say it again in this passage, keep this to yourself. Really? Yeah, don't talk about this right now. Not the time to talk. But then he says something that's pregnant with meaning. He says, after the resurrection, tell everybody. Verse 9. After the re- now, now we read our Bibles and we know there's a resurrection in this story. And we've known that since we went to Sunday school. So it's no big surprise to us. But if you're following a man who raises the dead and he heals the sick and he causes the blind to see, and he says, oh, and by the way, they're going to murder me and then I'm going to rise again, that's kind of like a really significant thing to say. It would be like a kind of a, that would be kind of a conversation stopper, wouldn't it? Don't tell anybody right now, wait till I come back from the dead, he says. The force of it is just lost on us because we know the story too well, but it wouldn't have been with them. He says, you're going to talk, talk about that when I come back from the dead. Peter then blurts out something interesting. You've got to love this guy, don't you? He blurts out, hey, This is a good thing. And I think Peter was totally on with that. Peter's like, this is good. This is a good thing. I'm like, yeah, you get to be one of the three guys that sees Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, and Jesus is glowing. Yeah, it's a good thing. 
<laughs> You're going to be telling your grandkids about this. You know, can you see Peter? He's like, whew, I've caught some big fish in my time, but this is a really big deal right here. I, I tell everybody, and he's thinking to himself, how about we build three tabernacles? And he's very self-effacing. He doesn't like, like, you know, here's the Peter and the James and the John tabernacle. Right? He didn't say that. And to his credit, he said, one for Jesus, one for you and Moses and Elijah. It seems like a good idea. Now, it's a little deeper than it really appears on the surface because if you kind of do the calculations, do you realize that this is a time when normally Jewish people would have been going up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, a commemorative feast when the people of God are remembering their time when they're tenting in the wilderness, and God always wants them to remember this. He wants them to go to camp every once in a while. Get away, live in tents, remember my, the travels in the wilderness, and this is that time of the year. And Peter's like, he's like, I know, we're not going to Jerusalem, but why don't we do the booths here why don't we do the tents why don't we do the tabernacles right here i mean it does it has some credibility it's self-effacing his timing is good and then what happens it's like a big light from heaven and god says stop talking peter (laughs) no more talk this is my beloved son he's gonna talk now (laughs) you know you know do you need me to apply that for you you don't, do you? It's like when God speaks, you might want to just like keep your silly little thoughts to yourself and listen for a while. God is speaking. Might want to be quiet now. For There ought to be a place in all of our lives where we just are silent before a holy God when He's going to say some stuff and He doesn't need us to cook up any cute ideas. Just be quiet and just listen to what He has to say. And this is what happens. In verse 6 it says, then fear fell upon them. They, they, boom, they're on the ground in fear. And Jesus touches them, tells them to rise. Can I say something here? I, I think it's really critical. When we talk about worship, we, a lot of times we divide where we, we, should, where we should synthesize. We, for instance, here in this worship experience, which is the only way you could describe it, what's going on? They're getting a picture of the transcendence of God, the otherness of God. Whew, he's holy. I'm on my face. My mouth is quiet. I'm silent. I'm on my face. The glory of God is showing. This is, ser- this is serious business. Transcendence. But then Jesus reaches over, verse 7, he touches him. He says, get up now. And it, and it introduces like an intimacy, like the Abba Father piece. Just call me daddy here. I'm not going to kill you. Yeah, you deserve to die, but I'm not going to kill you. There is a balance there. If there's never any transcendence in your worship, it isn't worship. If there's never any other in your worship, it isn't worship. If there's never any awe in your worship, it isn't really worship. You haven't connected with the true God. He's going to suck your breath out every once in a while. He's He's going to cause you to be silent every once in a while. You're going to tremble every once in a while with godly fear before God. But then other times he's going to reach down and help you stand to your feet. And it's going to be okay for you to call him daddy. It's going to be okay for you to speak to God. Imminence, close. Let's not divide over that. 
Let's experience both God's transcendence in worship and his imminence in worship all the time. And then in verse 8, when they look up, they only see Jesus. And by the way, what had they been doing, again, in Matthew, if you read Matthew, you wouldn't know. What had they been doing? Jesus was praying. What were they doing? In Luke, they were sleeping. <laughs> so, what, so when he wakes up, Peter has a, kind of a habit of waking up out of a sleep and doing something not quite on, you know. Wakes up out of a sleep when he's supposed to be praying, cuts off somebody's ear. I think at one point it says, and Peter said, not knowing what he was saying, the poor guy. We need to be very careful what we say about Peter because we'll meet him someday. He'll say, can you imagine him saying, Ken, I appreciate that one message. That was really cute. Could I point out a few things about that you said? I'd be like, never mind, man. Hopefully we'll be too caught in wonder, love, and praise to be occupied with that kind of thing. So in verse 9, he comes down and he says, don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. And then they have this question, and and there's a hint there that this question is a question they're having trouble with, that the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees are like plaguing them with this question. And they're like, hey, while we're here and we're all really close and you've shown us your glory and you're answering questions, could we ask you a question about, you know, they want to know about Elijah. Is it, no, you, we're saying the Messiah is here, and they're saying, uh-uh, he's not either because Elijah hasn't come. And we're not sure how to answer that question. And he says, they missed Elijah. They killed him. They cut his head off. This was the personification of Elijah. They cut his head off. That's done. That happened. And, they're gonna, and then he says it chillingly, and they're going to treat me the same way. And again, he keeps saying, son of man, Right? Which is reckoning back to where? Daniel chapter 7. Take notes if you're not getting this, folks. Yeah, Daniel chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. That was last week. You guys should remember that. wasn't that long ago. Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is the Son of Man coming in the glory of the Father. Whew, that's a good part. You're like, I ought to memorize that. You're really, that's a good part. Jesus, the Son of Man coming in the glory of the Father. They don't make a video game that touches that. <laughs> Can you imagine that? It's going to be... The return of Christ and power and great glory one day. Nobody's going to wonder. Nobody's going to question. It's going to be lights on for everybody. You might want to get in on that now. I mean, like right now. Just get in. And so we have that. i got to keep going. Why was Jesus transfigured? Why? Let me suggest a couple of reasons. To encourage his disciples. I've already kind of made that clear. He was transfigured, I believe, to just to encourage his disciples. So his disciples would, yes, we're gonna go, we're gonna, we're gonna have glory, and we got a little foretaste of glory, and all the time he's being transfigured and showing him his glory, his godness, he is the Messiah, he keeps reminding them of the violent death he's gonna face, and he keeps hinting to them that they're gonna have to take up their cross to follow him. So he's telling that to encourage them. You like good food, right? You like marital love, right? You love holding a baby, right? Looking at their eyes. They get old enough, their eyes track with you. I got a little granddaughter. Can I talk about her for a minute? Is that cool? And she doesn't know me that well yet. She has a little look on her face like, I think I ought to know you. And I'm like, oh, you're going to know me. (laughs) Her little eyes are looking at me just like, it's almost like I, I can imagine her going, I think I know you. I'm like, yeah, you're, you're going to know me. 
something about that, isn't there? God gives you that. It's like a good meal or marital love or the offertory when they're playing stars and stripes forever. It just stirs up your soul. We, we have, the, the, the world is full of beautiful things like babies and cherry pie and flags snapping in the breeze and a young man in strength, a young woman in her beauty. That just stirs up a human soul. But none of them satisfy the deepest part of a person like it's going to be to see who God really is, His glory. You see, the glory of God, everything else that you see that's good is a dim reflection of who God is, His glory. So if you see the beauty in the symmetry in a little baby's face or the stirring of freedom in your heart on a patriotic holiday or, or the taste of sweetness in your mouth because of a piece of pie, all of that is just like God saying, Pay attention to how sweet I am. Pay attention to how beautiful I am. Pay attention to how glorious I am. Get it? It's the glory of God. And He's giving us little wonderful hints all throughout our life for us to see His glory. He's manifesting Himself to us. Nothing will ever satisfy the human heart like seeing who God really is. The glory of God. And the Bible says that when we see the glory of God with the deepest part of us, then we're changed to be like Him inside, transformed to His glory from one level of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's a miracle the Holy Spirit does. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So heaven is going to be, bang, the glory of God. Your devotional life should every once in a while just a crack open and the glory of God falls on your soul. And you're like, I know what this is about. And he does this with his disciples. Remember Moses, we can't take time today, we'll live to play another day. Moses says, God, show me your glory. I'm scared. I have a big job to do. The people are stubborn. And I find, show me your glory. God says, I show you my glory. Moses is like, good, I'm good. And so whatever it is that you're going through, just ask God, show you more, show me more of you. I'll be good to go. He shows himself to his disciples. They're encouraged by this, even though they're going to go through some hard stuff. There's another thing. He establishes his deity. Well, he doesn't establish his deity. He didn't need to. He's God. But this establishes in their minds, you understand. Establishes it as a statement his deity. He doesn't have to defend his deity. He's just God, right? Never has to defend his deity. He doesn't have to make it up. He just is. This displays the deity of Christ in a very, very powerful way. If you ever doubted before, like, look at this passage. Those folks that come by your door and they have a religion that doesn't involve Jesus being God. How in the world do they actually read the Bible and come up with that? Jesus is God. And he displays his deity. Let me give you some, some uh, why is it important to us? Let's answer these questions. And I kind of got to this already. Seeing Jesus is what you need the most. Can I talk to you about camp? How many of you went to camp this week? Raise your hand and leave it up. You went to camp this week? Raise your hand and leave it up. Okay, you're got, like, thanks a lot. You guys are now in re-entry mode. I know how you feel right now. You've been to camp. Some of you came to know the Lord at camp. You got your heart stirred every day. Hope and I were talking last night. She said, Lake Ann has got it going on, Dad. I said, what do you mean? She goes, you got to chapel in the morning you got chapel at night you got a counselor to help you it's just going on up there i'm like yeah what is that when i was a boy i went to camp for for all the wrong reasons and all the right reasons how about you i i i went to camp can i just be very honest about this one of the things i thought about about going to camp all year long was that there would be girls there 
None of them were going to like me, but I knew they would be there, you know, just being there. I, I liked the idea of going to a place where your mother could not tell you not to eat sugar or drink two Mountain Dews if you wanted to. The idea was just a great idea. It's like going to a place where you have your own money and a bit of freedom and you get new tennis shoes and there are girls and you can like work the crowd and get to know them all. I know you didn't go to camp for those reasons, but I did. I did. And then when camp was over with, there'd always be that like sweet parting, you know, like, oh, this is a killer to say goodbye to these people, especially the girl that didn't, you know, throw up when she met me like some of the girls at school did and... That'd be all neat. And then you'd get to the end of the week, and it'd be really sad. And my parents would always say, you know, after camp, you shouldn't be depressed. You know, you come home from camp, and you guys are all moping around. You know, you're tired, and you said goodbye to your new friends. So you're kind of, you know, and, and at church, you know, they don't have the band that they got at camp. And so it's like, oh, man, you know, it's like old people music now. Back to church. So, uh, so you're, you're sitting there, you're kind of going, man, I, I don't know about this. But did it, was there anything else that happened up at camp? I didn't go to a camp like Lake Ann with, you know, Scent of the Pines and a good band and professional speaker and counselors they actually paid. But when nighttime came and it was time to go to chapel... And they would sing those songs, and that old kind of Tennessee windsucker type preacher would get up, bivocational pastor that volunteered for the week, and he would preach. Something crazy would happen in my soul. Something sweet and deep and real that meant something. It's like it was it was bigger deal than girlfriends or food or sports. It was something I couldn't really define. It was something eternal inside of me that was stirring. It was real, and it's been real. To this very day, it's real, and it will always be real until the day that I die. And then when I go to heaven, it will keep being real. It will be real all throughout eternity. No one can ever take it away from me. It will only get better and better. It is the glory of God, the stirring of who God is. Somebody getting up in the simplest way and singing and preaching and expressing who God is and His glory that stirs up something deep. And if you're coming back from camp and you're having trouble on the re-entry, can I just remind you in a loving way, the God who was God when you were way up north and the chapel time at night and the singing and the preaching is still God and He will follow you throughout your entire life and He will love you and He will help you and He will be there for you. And you will never find anything sweeter than that. In all of your life, you need it. It's yours. God's glory, His expression of who He is, is showing Himself to you. That's why you liked camp, by the way. If you know the Lord, that's why you liked camp. I, I talk to kids, I speak at camp, and you, you talk to them and you say, what did you like best about camp? And a lot of times a kid will say, I, I like chapel the best. Now, of course, being the chapel speaker, that might be why they say that, because it's like the, the answer they're supposed to give. But I really believe that a lot of people who, even little people, young people, they're sensing that deep stirring of God in their soul. 
Can I get a witness on that? You know what I'm talking about? So God took him to camp, and Peter said, this is a good thing. Let's build tents. Let's build tabernacles. And then God says, oh, just listen to Jesus. Seeing Jesus is what you need most. That's what your soul needs most. Seeing Jesus helps you face suffering, right? So the disciples are going to face suffering. And Jesus knew they would face suffering. He says, let me show you some of my glory because we're about to go through the fire here. Seeing Jesus helps you resist temptation. And, and why is that? Because it's that expulsive power of a new affection thing. It is that. That's what Thomas Chalmers the Puritan said. Didn't he say that well? It is the, the best way to overcome temptation is to displace it with a higher affection with something that's even greater, which is the glory of God. And then seeing Jesus helps you help others see him. This weekend was a cool weekend for me because we went to a wedding that I didn't have anything to do with. Which is kind of interesting because normally if you're conducting the wedding or you're singing at the wedding, then you have preparations and you're thinking about it. And this particular wedding was the wedding of my niece Carly to a guy named Brett. Carly's uh, mother is Lois's sister, Linda. Her dad's named Bobby. I, I, sat in the, I sat in the back with the, with the little babies, trying to help the babies be quiet so that their moms could watch the wedding. And I, I watched my son perform the wedding, watched another one of my sons and daughters sing at the wedding, watched my nieces and nephews stand up there, watched my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, while they just like were enjoying one of the sweetest moments of their entire life. Two kids who know God, who love God, who have a very clear Christian testimony, vowing their love together and giving glory to God in every imaginable way they could. And I just sat in the back and cried like a baby. Couldn't stop crying. Didn't want to stop crying. Because what was going on in my mind was I remembered this years and years ago, the first time I ever heard Bobby Dunbar's voice called me at 3.30 in the morning. This is Bob Dunbar. I'm like, what are you calling me for? Is Linda there? I'm like, who is this guy? And what does he want with my sister-in-law at 3.30 in the morning? And the first time he shows up, I'm like, is he saved or not saved? And what's up with him, you know? And then we go golfing and I start talking to him about the things of the Lord and you see that God is doing a deep stirring in his life and the man lives for God and he loves God and he knows God. He's a leader in his church and he's a blessing to people and he's raising his kids for the Lord and now his, first, his firstborn daughter is getting married and she's marrying a solid Christian God and he gets up at the part where the dad prays and he says this most beautiful Christ-exalting testimony. It was just more than I could take. And I didn't have anything to do with it, but I had everything to do with it. I wasn't involved, but I was really involved. I didn't matter, but I did matter. And then they did this cool thing I've never seen on a wedding before. That they gathered everybody in a circle then when he prayed. They just, the, the whole family went up on the platform in a circle and they prayed together. And my grandson Kyle was looking at me while I was just crying. I looked over at him, his eyes were real big, and he said, Grandpa, I feel like crying. I'm like, yeah, me too. Because there's nothing bigger. There's nothing that lasts longer. There's nothing that's sweeter than helping somebody else see 
who Jesus really is, so that then they help other people see who Jesus really is, and they have families that see who Jesus really is, and then suddenly you get to sit back and you go, God, let me be a little tiny part of that. Well, as you can imagine, I could talk about that all day, but I won't. And Peter, in First Peter, you can study it. In First Peter chapter 1, Peter's still talking about this when he's an old man. And he answers a question that's got to be kind of ringing in our ears right now, and that is, well, Jesus is going to take me up on the mountain and show me his glory this afternoon. So how can I see Jesus? And how can I see the glory? And do you realize that Peter understood we would feel that way? Peter said, he showed me his exceeding glory in the mountain, but you have a more sure word of prophecy. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 or 22. And he says, it's the word of God. How can you see Jesus? Jesus reveals himself in creation, according to Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1. He reveals himself in providence, in the flow of history. He reveals himself in circumstances, in wayside flowers and birds overhead, and little babies. He reveals himself in the spoken word and singing. But there is one place where he clearly and vividly, with high focus and high definition, shows who he is. He didn't leave us without that. We can't go up on the mountain right now and see his glory, but we can open up this book and we can see the glory of God. That's why we come on Sunday, and we don't rush the preacher, do we? No, we don't, because we want to see God's glory. And then he reveals more of himself to those who really are seeking him. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning for these who have come in seeking you today, that even though we're seeking you, that our seeking you would be even deeper than it ever was before that your beauty to us would be even more radiant, more attractive, more beautiful, more magnetic, more compelling than it ever was before. I pray, Lord, even today for these that have gathered here, that some of them would be like Bobby those years ago, things not very clear, but there's a Godward tug on their heart and he steps across and he receives Christ and then, Lord, his life just blossoms with beautiful things and he becomes a a, a leader of many. And I pray even this morning for these that are here that haven't yet stepped across the threshold there into the family of God, into the household of faith, that they would believe even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take your hymn.